0: me invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. So we're going to be in John's gospel account, the gospel according to the Apostle John this morning, and I'm very excited to be returning to what is the introduction uh, to this wonderful gospel. We're returning again this morning to what is known as the prologue. To John's Gospel. And yes, I was here last Sunday when uh, I preached for you from verses 1 through 5, and we considered them together in depth. We are going to read them again and make some consideration from them because of the goal that I have for our understanding and consideration of verses 1 through 18 together. So that verses 1 through 18 make up what is known as this prologue. All 18 of these verses, and they are far more than just uh, an introduction. They're not simply a historical account, they're not simply the opening of the gospel. It's not just the first thing that he came up with to write, it's even more than a thesis statement. And I hope to try to show you some of the beauty and the artistry and the complexity. ...of this exalted prose, as some have called it, in these verses. Uh, These verses, this prologue, that is so much more than they meet the eye, particularly in English. They're beautifully written, they are uh, literarily complex, and they have incredible structure and symmetry. And actually, our consideration this morning of these verses is going to be driven by the structure and the symmetry... Rather than simply moving linearly from the beginning of the verses down through the verse, the end of the verses. So we're not going to kind of start at verse 1 and make our way down to verse 18. I want to explain and show you the structure of these verses and then let that structure actually guide our consideration for these verses this morning. Now we know that um, John gives us, as we said last time in chapter 20 of this Account his express purpose in writing, and it is that he was desiring to clearly articulate and defend certain truths such that Jesus Christ would be seen and understood as the divine Messiah. So that's a loaded term. Divine, John is extremely interested that we understand that Jesus is God, Messiah. That as God and as divine, he is also the long-awaited and prophesied Savior of God's people. So, he begins and he says that this is the divine Messiah. And toward the end of this gospel account, he tells us that I am writing all that I am writing to you. That you would know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But he also says that he wants to... Write in such a way so that all of those who read his letter would not only know this with their mind, but would be convinced and believe in this divine Messiah with their heart for salvation. So he wants us to know and to defend and theologically and clearly articulate who Jesus is and why Jesus has come, but then also to convince us. And all of those that would read this gospel account, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. To see and understand and appreciate what God has done for us through Christ, and that he alone is our portion and our hope. And so even in this, the complexity of these verses, in this uh, this. Literary introduction in this prologue in these first 18 verses he reminds us of this purpose and he sets forth this thesis as I'm going to labor to show you in just a moment the center of this section is verses 12 and 13 so before we even read it together I want you to keep this in mind look at how he opens this is the the literary center of these verses and the theological center of these verses. But to all who did receive him, that is Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So in the center of this complex introduction, he is setting forth this thesis that he is going to recapitulate in the end of the letter as his purpose for writing. That is, that we would be among those who have been given the right to become children of God, born not of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of the sovereign God who loves us by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he tells us that here. So I want us to read it together, and then I want to help you see the structure of these verses, and then consider them accordingly. Before we read them, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, what a great privilege it is that we can now come to your word. God, that you've put us in this place with uh, the the freedoms that we enjoy now, where we can read and study your word publicly and do it together, where we may be convicted of it rightly and hold to those convictions without fear of um, too much oppression and pushback and being dragged off and thrown into prison because of what we believe. God, we thank you for the privilege this morning of coming to your word, and so we pray that you would help us to steward the grace that you have shown us by giving it to us well. God, we also pray that by your spirit you would speak, that you would open our ears so that we could hear, that you would open our eyes so that we could see, that you would open our hearts and our minds that we may be filled so that we are not only hearers of your word, but God, do these things for us now as we study for these next few moments. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, John chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 1 together. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Now, um, I've mentioned to you that my desire is to help you see something of the, the structure of these verses. And you have heard me talk on a number of occasions from various passages of Scripture about what is known as a chiasm. So it is an intentional literary device... It is often employed both in Old and New Testament passages by New Testament and Old Testament authors in order to force the reader not just to kind of read simply, but to see by um, what is bracketing information, what is the center of a passage. And it wants us to understand the center of a passage because it's very important that we give the greatest weight and measure of understanding to what is the central purpose or theme of the author in writing the passage. And John 1 verses 1 through 18 are a very complex and carefully stylized chiasm, and I want to try to show you that this morning. So look at verses 1 through 5, okay, that open, and you can break this down into much smaller um, considerating, considerations and I'm going to try to do as generally as I can So as to not lose you But the general structure looks like this Verses 1 through 5 They correspond to Verses 16 and 17 And 18 And the issue for the author So at the outermost sections Of this passage The, the, the first and the, the last Brackets Is the nature of the word Notice that he is presented as eternal, beginning and end. He is presented as God, literally theos, in the beginning and the end. And notice that it is said in these verses that he comes from God to us, that is to creation. So that in verses 1 through 5, his role in creation from God the Father is made evident. In verses 16 and 17 and 18... His role in the revelation of God to the creation He has made. So you see the correspondence then of this eternal Word, the divine Word, the Son of God, who is God, and was with God in the beginning to make all things, and whom God has sent to reveal Himself to the creation He's made. Okay, so that's the first brackets. Then if we move in, almost as if on a concentric circles here, if we move into the next two sections, you see verses 6, 7, and 8 corresponding to verse 15. And it's pretty plain. It's self-evident. You see there, the interest of the author is to tell us about the one God sent to bear witness about his son. So that the testimony of John the Baptist is mentioned in both of those sections. Then moving in a step further in our concentric circles, verses 9 and 10 and 11 correspond, that is with the light that has come into the world and those who rejected it, corresponds with verse 14, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the actual coming of the light or the coming of the sun in the flesh and the way that certain individuals receive him so that you'll see that in 9, 10, and 11, he came to his own as the light, and they rejected the light. But John says for himself and others in verse 14, but we have seen him in all of his glory as the incarnate word, the son of God. So those go together with the issue of the revelation of Christ himself or the manifestation of Christ Among us. And that then moves us one more step to what is then the very center of Paul's interest. So, in other words, he wants us to know that this is the Son of God, God Almighty, the eternal divine word and Savior for God's people, whom God has sent word and deed to testify about, to prepare our hearts in order that we might next. Be among those who receive him and see him as he is among us, the word made flesh. In order that, verses 12 and 13, we might believe in him and be given the right by the power and sovereignty of God to become his children. You see what Paul's, I mean, you see what John's interest is. He is writing all of this in this very beautiful and complex way in order to force us to wrestle with the issue or the question, who is Jesus to you? Now, I don't mean by that that Jesus is different to every different different individual. Jesus is who Jesus is, but we individually either see him as he is and believe upon him. As he is and for the purpose that God sent him, or he's nothing. And so it it, it is of crucial importance that we understand who Christ is and was and how God has sent him forth. And for what purpose he has come in order that we can be among those who truly believe in him. So he begins with this thesis that he then recounts at the end of his work. And so I hope that that structure makes sense to you. So we're going to consider it then, beginning with the outside sections and moving in. and, And I want us to structure our consideration with asking two questions. Number one, we're going to try to answer the question, what or who do you see when you look at Jesus? And number two, when you do see him, are you filled with hope? So what do you see when you look at Christ? And once you see it, does it fill your heart and your life and your soul with hope? Now, what do you see when you see Jesus? Kind of the question I was getting at a moment ago. Seems to be the central issue here. That John wants us to know who Christ is so that we can see him as he is and benefit from believing in him. Well, he begins in verses 1 through 5, and the same theme or interest is picked back up in 16 and 17 and 18. The nature of the word because he wants us to learn what it is that we are supposed to see when we look at Jesus Christ. When you think about Jesus, what do you think? Most people in my world, and, and I don't just mean here, out there. When, when I come to someone at the grocery store or on the street out here by the church or In various and sundry places, and I I strike up a conversation at the doctor's office with the tech that's helping me about, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus? What do you believe? It begins like, you know, they they begin to say something like this. Well, to me, Jesus is, you know, dot, 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 fill in the blank. Or when I think about Jesus, I like to see him in this way. Or, Or the Jesus that I believe in would never Do this or would always do that. Or I just I just can't see how how Jesus, the way that I see him, how how he could ever say such a thing or do such a thing. But for most people in this postmodern relativized Western mindset in 2018, in our culture today, Jesus is whatever you want him to be. So that we have we have created. The Jesus of our imagination who tells us what we want to hear and who does for us what we want him to do. He is the, I heard someone say recently, you know, big daddy in the sky who gives us what we want. He is the genie who is to be rubbed and brought forth when we need him. He is the therapist that is to speak into our hurts when it's convenient for us and to tell us what we want to hear. That's the kind of Jesus of the culture today. But John seems supremely interested with bracketing the section that is centered upon belief in him for salvation with beginning by the most essential truth about him. Do you see? That if you're going to ever get to the middle where you believe and are saved, then it must be based upon the most primary, the most essential things, which are the truth about Jesus. And so he's helping us to see what it is that we're supposed to see when we look to Christ. Do you realize that Christ came to reveal the Father to you? Notice what he says at the end here. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, that's Jesus. He has made him known. How is it that Jesus Christ can make God known? How is it that God can reveal himself to us Speak to us through the better word of the Son, Hebrews 1. How does that happen? Well, it's because of the other premise of the Apostle John here. Because he is God. In the beginning, when God made everything, Jesus was there. He was the agent of creation. He was the one through whom and to whom all things were made. There has never been a time when he was not. Jesus didn't begin when he was born in that manger. Jesus didn't end when he was buried in that tomb or placed upon that cross. Jesus has always been and he will always be. And because he's God, he has every right to look upon God. To be with God at his very side. And in coming from the Father to us on earth, we are able to see God. The fullness of God. The glory of God beauty of God, the mystery of God, the wisdom of God, all to be held in the face of Jesus Christ. But not only did he came to reveal to us something about God the Father, but he says here that in coming to reveal, he came to pour out God's grace upon us. Look at what he says, verse 3, all things were made through him and without him. Was not anything made that was made. And here we come. Verse 4. In him was life. And the life in Christ was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. We'll go back down to verse 16. The corresponding verse here. Light corresponds to grace. Verse 16. For from his fullness... We have all received grace upon grace. Do you see that? That Jesus Christ came in the fullness of God the Father to reveal him to us and to pour out his grace and his favor upon us. This twofold purpose, this this twofold picture of what we should see when we look at Christ, when we see Jesus. It's expressed back up in verse fourteen. There is some overlap. The only Son, come from the Father, that is in being flesh, becoming flesh and dwelling among us. What does it say? Full of grace and truth. The truth is what He teaches us and reveals to us about the Father, and the grace is the grace of God that He bestows and pours out upon us. So there's this this twofold image. Do you know that that's what Jesus has come to do? That's who Jesus is. To reflect into the darkness of your life, the beauty and the brightness of the righteousness of God. That's an uncomfortable tension. Jesus did not come to stroke your uh, emotions and your ego and your affections. Jesus has not come to tell you what you want to hear as some therapeutic deity. No, he's come to show you God and in showing you God, show you you and show me, me and help me and you to understand the gap that is between the creator that is holy and righteous and wonderful and the creature that is defiled by sin and broken. And so you see, he says he's God. Because he's God, he's come from God to us. And in coming to us, he has brought a picture of God and the beauty of God and the fullness of God in order that we would see God and be confronted with God. Why? Not to leave us in our brokenness. Not so that you can just be beat up today because you see you're nothing like your God that Jesus reflects. But in showing you your brokenness, pour out upon you God's grace. Namely that of reconciliation through repentance. So he comes, he reveals, he exposes, he separates, and then he gathers. He brings us in. Grace upon grace. Notice the juxtaposition, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but also that through Moses, that is in the tabernacle. It's a play on words from verse 14, and we'll come back to this. That Jesus is dwelling among us. That Remember through Moses that in the tabernacle, the law and the mercy seat were commanded to be held in that tent. What, what's God saying? That now, now you no longer need a tent to meet with me. Because the place of my appointed meeting with sinners is only in Jesus. That's what he said. He's been revealed so that you can know me and so that you can be brought into a relationship with me. Secondly... We learn that God has worked in mighty ways in order that we would actually see Christ in this way. Now, I love this because this bears tremendous truth in the testimony of my own life. And it does in yours also. So that you may wonder why in the world is verses 6, 7, and 8, and verse 15 about the witness of John the Baptist inserted into these theologically rich and deep verses about the person and work of Jesus Well, if John's interest is that we would understand who Jesus is and what he is to reveal to us, he also wants us to see, in order that we understand how it is we believe, that God is the one who brings us to believe, not ourselves. Have you ever considered this? That if God had not prepared your heart to see Jesus, you would never have seen. What does he say? That John the Baptist came to bear witness about the light, to prepare the way for the light, to declare in humility that the one seen to be so humble in the flesh is greater than I am, that he is before me because he's God Almighty, God in the flesh. And so he comes. Notice what God did not do. He did not send Jesus in the flesh, to reveal His glory and grace and then let all of the sinners on earth just figure it out for themselves. Why? Because if God had not prepared and brought in some, heaven would have none. That's why. How did you get here this morning? Maybe because of a spouse who drugged you. Maybe because of a parent who made you. Maybe because of some cultural guilt. Maybe because of a tradition in your family. You just can't say no because it's frowned upon. Praise God for those things. Because you're going to hear the gospel this morning, even if I don't do a very good job. And through me and through John and through these verses... God is going to speak to you and reveal to your heart something of the truth of Jesus.
1: You know, I was a lost
0: church member for many, many, many years. But guess what? In the grace and providence of God, I was born in a Christian home where I was confronted with the truth of Christ. I was raised in an imperfect church, but they believed the gospel. And they preached it to me again and again and again. And I may have run day after day after day. But all along in the midst of my running, God was calling out to me. And God was after me. And God, like he did through John the Baptist, was preparing the way for Christ into my heart. Do you see that if God had not worked when you were in sin, you never would have been given the sight to see Jesus? And he says here, lest we think we have come and we have found and we have decided who Jesus is and what he means to me. God says, you see Jesus because I sent him. Because I have revealed myself in him. Because I brought salvation through him. And because I open your eyes. I sent little John the Baptist all throughout your life to prepare the way. So not only do we see that Jesus is perhaps more interested in our coming to see Jesus than we are. We also here thirdly learn that we can see him and not receive him. We see that we can see him and not, re- not receive him. Look, look guys, there, there is ample testimony here that, that God can call out to you and give you all of these opportunities. We can continue to push against him in our sin and continue to run and squander the grace of God in our lives and prove ourselves to be apostates. The language of Hebrews that for those that have been given the opportunity by the gracious hand of God to see and to taste and to experience something of the covenant community and to trample underfoot His Son anyway, that there will be a terrible judgment for them. Look here, verses 9, 10, and 11, which correspond with verse 14. There's a juxtaposition now to be made. After we see who Christ is revealed, after we see our hearts prepared, We see the differing responses to Jesus. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. It says, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his people did not receive him. But look, compare that to what John says. By way of personal testimony, John says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. That is the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. You see the difference? What privilege the Jews had. God gave them a system, a sacrificial system that pointed to the sacrificial lamb. He gave them a law which pointed to Jesus Christ. Yet they would not have him. But John says, when the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, dwelt among us, maybe one day we'll have time to come back and really explore that language. When God sent Jesus to become the meeting place for himself and people, the place of reconciliation, he says, we saw him. And we didn't just see him with our eyes, we didn't just see him with our our, our minds, we didn't just hear about him with our ears. We saw Him as the Son of God. In all of His glory, the only Son from the only God in heaven come to us. He said, we see Him. And He's come with grace and truth. I wonder what you see when you see Jesus or when you look at Jesus. Is it a good teacher that you see? Some wise counsel every now and again. He helps me along the way when I have trouble parenting my children and relating to my spouse. When I'm down in the depths of depression or anxiety, he comes with the therapy that I need. What what, what do you see when you look to Christ? Friends, let me tell you. If you don't see the eternal God made flesh in order that he would conquer the hearts of sinners and become the meeting place between the righteous God and you, then you have it Then you're like those in 9 and 10 and 11 where the light has come. The light has come. But darkness in your heart remains. It's my prayer that God would effectively, efficaciously, irresistibly shine the light of Christ into the darkness of every single one of our hearts this morning. So that the darkness is dispelled. And the beauty of Christ as the revelation of god and his salvation would be evident and manifest in each of our lives that theme of light by the way and rejection is picked back up in the famous verses around john three sixteen. that god so loved the world that he gave his only son so that anyone who believes in him would not perish but have eternal life listen to what follows but god did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that through the that the world might be saved through him Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, but people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. My prayer is that that would not be us this morning. And so finally, the second question, and to deal with verses 12 and 13 now that we have moved all the way into the central section of John's argument here. Once you see it, is it it just information? Or does it bring you hope? You know, I was talking with the kids in Sunday school this morning a lot about about how in, in in our culture, in our day, in our vernacular and language, we talk about hope and This morning, I'm trying to think of some of the things that they said. I hoped for a boat. One of them hoped that their family would not be so sick. Another hoped that they would make A's and B's in school. Another hoped that he could play video games all day. But you know what I told them? None of those hopes are Christian hopes. Not because anything that those hopes are for is wrong, but because they may or may not happen. For the one who hopes that he can play video games all day, I can testify to you it ain't happening. <laughs> but, but we hope for all sorts of things, good and bad, and what we mean is, man, I hope that it happens because I have no assurance that it will. Friends, that's not the hope. For those that see him high The son of God Almighty Bringing knowledge of God to us And knowledge of our separation From him Taking on himself Flesh Becoming the tent of meeting And reconciliation He says For those that did Receive him and believed In his name He gave the right to become his children. So that they are not born of flesh and blood, but are born in Christ by the power of God. What's the point? That if we will believe in this Christ in this way, it is only because of and by the power of God through us. And friends, if God has brought no one can take it. Would you look and see Jesus today? Let the light shine in the darkness of your heart. And when you see your desperate need for Christ. And cry out in repentance and faith unto salvation. You can be filled with the sure hope of Christ. That you are his. And you shall always be. Because God is. Christ has done. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we pray that we would hear the words of this text of John's Gospel. Not just with our ears, but that we would see and understand with our hearts. And that today would be the day of salvation. God, that we would believe that we would repent of sin, by your power, you would give us the right. You would birth us again as your children. God, would you meet with us